it was very much my mission and belief that really we should use this birthday to look to the future. Good housekeeping has survived as a brand 100 years and it is in robust health because it's always delivered what readers and the audience need at any given moment. Welcome to Media Voices, everybody. We take a look at all the news and the views from the media world over the past week. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. And that clip you just heard is from my conversation with Gabby Hoodart, who is Group Editorial Director at Hearst UK and Editor-in-Chief of Good Housekeeping. So we talked about celebrating the Rand Centenary last year with their first multi-day live event, what a good housekeeping reader looks like today, and why it's so important for the title to be future-facing. But our main story this week is that Meta is going to pay BuzzFeed something in the region of $10 million to generate creator content for Facebook and Instagram. Now, a partnership of this nature seemed to me to have been resigned to the past, considering everything that's happened, A, between publisher and platform, and B, with BuzzFeed's uh, status and financial oh, I had to check the date. I had to check it wasn't like 2017. It is very strange, isn't it? But Esther, why don't you Well, creator would... would uh... Well, that's true. But Esther, why don't you take us through exactly what's happening with this, the nitty gritty of it all? Okay, well, I'll say details are fairly scant because the Wall Street Journal broke this and it was just very much like they'd just got the overview of what was going on. But the top level thing seems to be that BuzzFeed is going to help generate content for Meta's platforms and, quote, train creators to grow their presence online. Um it, so, I mean, BuzzFeed and Facebook have, have sort of got a partnership going back almost a decade. They they were quite a close partner of the infamous Pivot to Video in 2016-17. Uh, BuzzFeed very much built their um, a lot of their content business around going viral on Facebook. Um, but I thought, like, sort of in the absence of any other details, I just thought this was a really bizarre partnership because, I don't know about you guys, but like, I feel like BuzzFeed isn't cool anymore. Like, maybe that's a bit unfair, but... Well, that's certainly- why you're on Facebook. Well, that's okay, neither Facebook... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like certainly their their presence and influence on social has declined, sort of with Meta's influence over the last five years, and they're not. I also wouldn't say that they're particularly known for pioneering creators. So I thought yeah, it's a very it's, curious sort of partner here. It's a very strange one, isn't it? Because a, I'm confused by what creator means yeah, in this sense. Cool. For me, creator has always meant kind of individual. an individual or a group of creators who are actually doing something. BuzzFeed is going to help sort of find and nurture these um, these individuals with large social followings that primarily monetize through sponsorship. I was a bit like, so, these are people that will be making quizzes on BuzzFeed. No, <laughs> no, no. That's that's been done by robots now, and that's the second part of this story. <laughs> this presumably is the people who do have a slight or like scant but still sizable social following who want to supercharge their activities across Facebook and Instagram. Also, I feel a bit behind now. Like, what's the difference between a creator and an influencer? I'll tell you exactly what happened here. It's that influencer marketing began to take a hit because people didn't want to be associated with influencers because of a string of scandals and also the fact that the sheen had come off it. So instead they went, actually, no, we're going to go broader. We're going to be creators now. Um, uh... And if that sounded... Cynical. I honestly didn't mean. I honestly didn't mean it to. Creator has the idea of they actually do create something, mm. where influencer has that kind of image of just swanning around and taking selfies. But I've I've seen them say that when they're taking selfies that and and you know creating videos themselves swimming in in the Bahamas that is creating content. It is, which it is. Yeah, of course it's yeah. just. 
it speaks to our complete antipathy in this, this industry with the word content because that literally just yeah. means anything. Absolutely. Also, I think the idea is, and having you know spoken to quite a few people about this recently, it's this idea that the act of the act of creation makes something premium. Well, creators has got that kind of artisan feel, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Like someone that made a stool out of a fallen oak tree kind of thing. Whereas influencer doesn't. It's like it actually sounds quite sinister in a weird sort of way. Well, <laughs> that is a fantastic contrast, that artisanal side to what's actually happening on the other side of BuzzFeed this week. So Peter, what <laughs> is happening with uh with AI at BuzzFeed? The robots are coming. BuzzFeed said they are going to start using AI to write the quizzes, which, to be honest, if they had all started like six, nine, ten months ago, you probably wouldn't have noticed, would you? Well, the interesting part of this, though, is just the fact that their stock just went straight up 120%. Well, you the know what? The cynicism behind that yeah. is just unbelievable. <laughs> We've had this, so we, last week we had the algorithm, the AI conversation, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we got to was, well, we see AI as a great thing as long as it's a tool that is used to enhance content. What's that word again? Rather than just churn out content. Um, and this story is basically underlying, underlining the <laughs> second part of that little paradigm. I, th- I think, though, because... And that this is particularly applies to BuzzFeed because of the way BuzzFeed works and the fact that it's it's its cost base is is has been very, very difficult for it to control. It it relies on scale, it relies on churning out all that content. And actually that's where AI does fit neatly into it. You know, you're not looking at you know, obviously not to disparage any of the work that BuzzFeed <laughs> do, but you're not looking for the at people third spending time this episode. I know. I'm so sorry, BuzzFeed guys. <laughs> um, but you know, you're not looking at people spending days carefully crafting um, in-depth features since they've fired much their news team. Um, mm. It's very much like you're looking at that high, that sort of high volume, very much high, high production that people will churn out however many quizzes during the day. And that actually is where I can see AI, gosh, adding that, again, adding value is possibly not the right term, but I, I can see why the stock market has responded well to this. And the stock has also risen on the news of them partnering with Meta, because I think People are suddenly like, wait, Meta has money for publishers now? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it has money for creators. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I mean, we, we were talking last week about it being, you know, useful in the right context. Generating quizzes and listicles is probably something that AI can do fairly well. It doesn't even need to be particularly sophisticated. Oh, I think uh, my so- soul just left my body <laughs> last night. But then it's, it's quite interesting because I, I swear like most of the quizzes were being done by their volunteers anyway because mm-hmm. there was that girl who ended up generating like like tens of millions of page views for them that ended up not being paid because she was just a, like a college grad or something. Yeah. So I, I didn't think the quizzes were a huge cost base from any way. But it's, you not, know. It, but it's not. But what they want is more pages. They want mm. more ad spaces. They want more ad spots to be able to sell against. And so, if- this is what advertising does to you, people. <laughs> also, this is all about perception again. The stock market—they've got to be the stupidest bastards on the planet. The people that run the stock market. 
Because they're just looking, someone at BuzzFeed goes, yeah, we're going to use AI. Oh, I'll buy BuzzFeed stock and it goes up 120%. No one has a clue what that means. No one has a clue what the result is going to be. These greedy bastards just see <laughs> an opportunity to make some money. Do you remember, it was a couple of years ago now, They um, there was an experiment where they put they got an analyst from Wall Street and a child and somebody just throwing <laughs> pieces of paper with the names of companies into the air. And they tested the performance of stock picked by the analyst, the child, and completely random. And the analyst consistently performed worse. <laughs> I think all of this, for me, sits against the background of a piece of essay ran in the newsletter. It's this thing, Layoff Brain from uh, Anne Helen Peterson, who used to be at BuzzFeed and now does a substat, a successful substat. It's just awful reading through that. Mm. You know, the idea of this constant feeling of who's next even if you don't get laid off but at buzzfeed or any other company you're constantly worried about who's next there's there's a quote in there my relationship with work is one of mistrust well that's mm. that living like that we not we all know that feeling it's awful it's interesting how every company that's cut people recently has cut about five to seven percent mm. Why is that? Well, it's because they're using this so-called recession as cover to get rid of the people that they hired through the pandemic when they were all doing great. And now it's like, so again, Peterson's in this piece says, CEOs was a willingness recession into existence to create a justifying narrative for layoffs, not because they need to save money, but to press reset on what they view as out-of-control compensation package and work demand. So basically they're just screwing people over because they've got the cover of this recession. So that, that, that actual piece is one of the most depressing things I've read in a very long time. It's very, very good though. <laughs> yeah, that's great. It's so well done. It's very um, honest as well. I've seen a number of things about it, with people comparing and contrasting the number of layoffs versus the high in orange in the pandemic. We've barely scratched the surface of like, and I know Amazon's a slightly different case because they, I mean, their business went bananas during the pandemic. But the number of people they hired, like their business, just and yes, you know they've they've now fired sort of I think like about eight thousand, but they'd, they'd hired sort of forty times that. <laughs> So I think the context there is quite important. And I think people were expecting a lot of the behaviours to carry, like things yeah, like the yeah, e-commerce yeah. boom, they're expecting that to carry on just accelerating. It's like, well, no, because we were we were going to go back. I don't want to say back to normal, but we were going to go back to that point eventually, yeah, or at least back um, to some sense of normalcy. And those behaviours were not going to carry on. No, so, like, yeah, people were hiring off the back of that. It's definitely changed buying behavior but it hasn't changed buying quantity across that way so people are more likely to buy online but that doesn't mean they're going to be buying in the same quantity it always seemed to me to be a bit of a hide into nothing uh we, we, we've moved on quite a bit from this buzzfeed story there. <laughs> um so to, to kind of i suppose to wrap this up so i want to put a question to the two of you here and to any publishers who are listening if you are using ai to generate your content as buzzfeed is going to be doing now for a subsection of its of its quizzes, you know, they talk about personalizing content using it. What then is your point of differentiation from every other publisher who's going to start doing exactly the same? And what is it going to do to your perception as a premium publisher? Oh, I wish that the audience could see this because you both just started nodding in perfect unison. <laughs> it's just the same old story, right? It's like all these people dive into the cheapest way of doing something. 
realize that everyone is doing exactly the same thing and then scramble to try and find a way to make themselves different. Um, that's the big story with the AI and SEO. People are worried that Google is going to just slam them up of them and else Google is going to have its own AI that it's going to be punting. So, robot versus robot. I think Brian Morris, you nailed that's when we talked about this last, last week. Um, it's that idea of differentiation comes from the humanity that you bring to these things, whether that's reporting or whether that's emotion or whatever. And I think that's a point. I also think it's going to be a bit of an antithesis to, if, if I tell you, you know the sort of people on LinkedIn who post like they were right, written by an AI. <laughs> It's going to like force a little bit of differentiation. Other people that were just writing, like just writing absolute nonsense. Is, <laughs> is to... there like LinkedIn bollocks awards? Can yes, there's a... there's there's a whole yeah, Twitter account dedicated to dedicated to like LinkedIn bollocks. That's such um, a great idea. It does remind me of it though. Do you, do you remember like a lot of the problems that there were with um, like viewing stats and um, basically like bots coming and skewing website stats back like five years ago? Do we yeah. remember? <laughs> well, yeah. specifically five years ago, I'm not sure, but yeah, over the last five years, yes. <laughs> well, yeah, like generally over the past decade, there's been like a huge problem with with bots just coming and like pretending to view stuff. Are we just going to end up in this internet where robots are just generating stuff that is just viewed by robots? Oh, it's already happened. Well, I think and we monetize there. that. Yeah, I think we're probably there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that's fine anyway, because the spend isn't all going on that it's also going to other robots because of the opacity of the uh, advertising system. So we've got robots stealing money from the robots who are creating content for other robots. So and who's spending the money? The robots. Perfect little circle, isn't it? But oh, this God. is this is just going to come back to like why it's so important to have registration walls to know who your audience is to to write for a clearly defined audience and the people that are in the niches will win. That's all. There's a piece on Digiday, I don't know if it was yesterday or the day before, talking about the the return to print advertising because you can get away from all this digital bollocks. I just thought that was great. Moving on to news in briefs. And um, this one is. We need a jangle for that. We, we really do, yeah. Don't worry. I'll, I'll, I'll write one. I'll put it in in post. Yeah, we need that. This isn't an especially useful story, but it's one that really caught my imagination this week in fact it's actually mostly anecdotal which might be why it took my imagination because it's written on such a human and despairing level so i really enjoyed the ft's admission that its foray into running a mastodon server was a total nightmare for them uh they they flag up the fact that the legal side of it was really the biggie the, the one that caused them to shut it down entirely responsibility for what sells on social media probably lies with the platform or in this case the people who run the individual server and while there is the potential that they would win that argument in court the ft decided that the cost of potentially having to do that outweighed the benefits but my favorite takeaway was that running a mastodon server professionally the costs just grow so exponentially as you have to add server sizes, you have to add resources to take care of it and to moderate it all, that they basically decided, no, that the only thing we can do here is to completely nuke it from orbit because it's the only way to be sure. Does that make you feel a little bit more empathetic to the likes of Twitter and Meta and um, the people that are dealing with this day in, day out? No. Yeah, it, 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 makes me think, it makes me think you shouldn't fire them. Oh, yeah, 100%, yeah. You shouldn't decide to run Twitter on a skeleton, but on a skeleton staff, for instance. But I don't feel sorry for them because, you know, if I'd taken a job where my role was to hold jellyfish and I then went on 
and went online and complained about how all the jellyfish kept stinging me and I was getting dragged out to sea by the jellyfish. <laughs> I took that job. I knew what I was getting into. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, ben Smith in Semaphore has written a piece about the apparent dwindling enthusiasm amongst the super rich for funding newspapers and magazines. Who knew? I'm looking at you, Chance the Rapper. <laughs> Um, I'm, I mean, I've, I'm conflicted with this. My, my political, political instinct is to go, yes, <laughs> fuck the billionaires. But my business brain is a little bit worried for the future of these newsrooms uh, because they, you know, they needed these guys saved these publications. And there's a list going back to Bezos in 2013. Um, so billionaires owning media companies is a bad idea in general. But the thing with this list, it, the new money that's on the list are way more benign than certain other octogenarian or even nonagenarian media moguls that we could talk about. He's got a new missus. Oh, yeah? Yeah. What first attracted you to the billionaire, Rupert Murdoch? <laughs> anyway, the point with this, this story that Ben Smith has done is that while these rich dudes keep these publications afloat, none of them has actually managed to reinvent the news business model. And that's really the point of all this mm. is that the only thing that's really going to save independent news provision is figuring out a new business model. The um, the thing I read, there was a line in this, um, ben, ben Smith definitely had some spicy lines in this, um, but uh, he, he said that these billionaires would have probably looked at the news business, gone, hey, you know, I'm a, I'm a really successful entrepreneur, I can go in and fix that, bought the business, and then suddenly he realized, like, actually, use, like, media is a really difficult business to be in, yeah. and once they've realized how difficult it is, they've kind of gone like, okay, I'm just going to, like, back off a little bit. Yeah. Um, with the one exception, he does cite um, Lauren Powell Jobs. Uh, who bought the Atlantic yeah. um, as being one of the ones that has actually rolled up her sleeves, got quite involved, and and like they are doing very very well. Um, yeah, it's just some, some of the lines in it which is really quite funny. It's an interesting counterpart to something we shared in the newsletter this week about a, a sort of conglomerate of U.S. local newspapers who basically said, "Well, look, absolutely, we want entrepreneurs, we want billionaires to get involved in funding, we want the government to get involved in funding, we want advertising funding." They were basically saying, "We can't rely solely on any one of those, so we can't rely on billionaires just coming in and buying it up and providing an endless well of money." That's great if they do, but we actually want to stand on our own two feet with a, a mix of six. Oh, well, even if they're you know, even if they are benign, they could change their mind. They could think of something. You know, they want to. Go to space or something, so they want to spend the money somewhere else. And yeah, I mean, like Bezos, Bezos, Bezos had to, to reassure the Wall Street Journal newsroom yeah. that he's not looking to sell at the moment. Still say we should eat the rich. <laughs> that's two. That's two cheerful stories. I'm not. I'm not going to um, make this any more cheerful. Um, so yeah, my my pick of news and briefs this week is that um, the U.S. government this week has filed what Casey Newton describes as potentially its most significant case yet against Google. Um, so the US Justice Department and eight states are suing Alphabet Inc.'s Google, calling for the breakup of the search giant's ad tech business um, because of alleged illegal monopolization of the digital advertising market. Well, I actually managed to say that. I actually managed to get all those words out. That is quite a sentence. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the lawsuit, um, I'll link to the Casey Newton piece because he's got all the details in it. It says that they want Google to divest the Google Ad Manager suite, which includes all their publisher ad server and Google's ad exchange. Um, yeah, I thought this one was quite interesting because, I mean, this isn't the first bit of um, regulation Google have been up against. Um, they've managed to brush most, actually most of the tech giants have managed to brush most of it off. Um, I think GDPR and the California Act being the exceptions, but, you know, they still haven't seen any real consequences from that. Um, 
but uh, yeah, Casey Newton reckons that this this is probably the one that they're not going to be able to just brush off because this is actually quite serious. <laughs> I remember a couple of months ago, Alphabet's solution to this was, okay, don't worry about it. We'll just split up the buy side and the sell side and the buy side will stay with us in Alphabet and the sell side will go to Google. And people were just like, what? No, you're the same <laughs> company. Like that doesn't, just because you've like... You're right, though. One of these eventually is going to stack and... It'll change things. Um, so it's just, it, yeah. Will 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 we sort of still be here in another ten years with exactly the same situation, or actually, yeah. could the next few years really define, I suppose, some of the some of the regulation actually having teeth around this? If it's not, if it's not Google and Meta, it'll be another two tech giants. It'll be Amazon and Apple. It'll be you know oh, in goody. the same way that it used to be like Yahoo okay. and somebody else. Well, it kind of goes in waves, doesn't it? Yeah, new kit from orbit is the only way to be sure. Turn it all off. All right, but let's not turn it off before you've listened to um, this week's <laughs> this week's interview with Good Housekeeping editor Gabby Hoddard. So we covered quite a lot from how readers' attitudes to their homes have changed over the pandemic to the role Good Housekeeping Institute plays in building trust. But I started by asking her how Good Housekeeping Live came about late last year and how the event went. So, uh, I mean, it's it's not the first ever live event for the brand. We've done live events, but they've been sort of, I suppose, what you call pop-up live events. So kind of, you know, we've done um, an event with readers when the author Karen Slaughter was over at the Good Housekeeping Institute with maybe 60 guests coming, to, you know, to a and a with her. Did a lovely event with Ottolenghi for a book launch a, a couple of years ago. But I suppose this event was more of a festival so it was two days. Uh, we took over an amazing venue, um, Carlton House Terrace in uh, London, St. James's. And it's a, a beautiful venue, huge house. And really, it was a two day wall to wall festival of everything good housekeeping. And, you know, we were lucky we worked with some amazing sponsors at the event. So um, Dyson, which is uh, the, with the um uh, have a lot of their products that go through our Good Housekeeping Institute and, are, you know, obviously a very future-facing brand, which, you know, a lot of what we did at, at Good Housekeeping Live and really over the course of the year, we were celebrating 100 years of heritage, but we really used that special anniversary to sort of be future-facing um, and and look, look at what's coming down the line for our audiences. And so the festival, you know, the, the Good Housekeeping Live was really part of that and there was, um, you know, fabulous talks with lots of uh, our favourite celebrities. So, you know, Davina McCall, who they love, um, Lucy Worsley, some of the Strictly stars, Anton Dubeck and Shirley Ballas. Um, who else do we have? We had finance experts, uh, Dame Helena Morrissey was there gi- giving advice. Nadia Hussein, Monica Galetti, you know, some of the favourite households. Um, known chefs, uh, Ruth Jones, amazing authors like Ruth Jones and Firm Britain. Uh, Jojo Moyes. So, you know, as a brand, we're known and loved by a lot of celebrities who work with us and and, and people who are experts in their field as well. So all of them were there to, to meet and talk with readers. Plus, uh, we had demonstrations of various things as well. A fashion, uh, you know, fashion talks from our experts. You know, we are lucky as a brand in that we've got a team of, you know, I'm very proud to say I've got the best journalists in the business on my team. And so Una Brennan, our group fashion director, was there giving advice on fashion to our audience. 
Um, yeah, our beauty director, Eve Cameron, was there um, talking about, uh, you know, how to age well and um, and giving readers lots of advice. So so it really championed the brand and all our experts and then brought in friends of the brand as well and put them in front of readers. And then we you know, were fortunate to work with some great sponsors and doing activations um, with them so that readers could see their products and services as well. So it was it was an amazing two days. I absolutely loved it. And the team loved it. And, you know, it's important. It allowed us to meet well over 2000 readers over the course of that two days um, who travelled into London to spend time with us. And it really sort of, I suppose, illustrated their passion mm. for this brand, um, which is quite humbling, really. Yeah, um, I did know because, I mean, Hearst has been quite well known for doing its live experiences for other brands for quite some time. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I know there's been a pandemic and all that, but 2022 does seem quite late for a, a, an inaugural event for good housekeeping in terms of sort of the size and scale. I suppose, were you waiting for the centenary or was it just a case of focus and resource? I think, I mean, there's, yeah, there's just always a lot mm. going on with good housekeeping. Um, I mean, you know, as I said, we have done lots of individual events before um, and we'll do kind of things where we, we get readers into the Good Housekeeping Institute and they'll come and, and um, do a tasting or they'll come and meet an author or we'll do um, those kind of in individual events showcasing different elements of the brand. But, I, you know, putting on a large scale event like this is, is a lot of resource. And, you know, it, the hook of the 100th birthday just seemed like a very good time to do it. Um, I mean, that said, we are now it was such a success and our readers loved it so much, as did we as a team, because it's allowing us really to showcase what we do in a kind of different format. Um, so we are looking at uh, hopefully doing something later on this year. Yeah, <laughs> that, that that was going to be my next question. Is this, is that the last one? <laughs> no, it won't be the last one. No, I think it's sort of re-energised us all. You know, we'd love to do it, but you, you've got to keep these things fresh. You can't just like, it was a great event, but we'd need to change it um, some way. So how do we keep it fresh? How do we keep it as something that, you know, the people who came last year, it would still surprise and delight them, really. So that's the work we're starting on doing now. But um, fingers crossed we'll be back with another event this autumn. <laughs> Brilliant. What else did you do last year to mark the centenary? So uh, lots, of, lots of different things. So editorially, uh, we did some retrospective articles on across platforms celebrating our heritage. But, um, you know, it was very much my mission and belief that really we should use this birthday to look to the future. Good housekeeping has survived as a brand 100 years and it is in robust health because it's always delivered what readers and the audience need at any given moment so we're, we're relevant now but also looking to the future so we did some things where we we showcased our experts uh knowledge in a series of 100 best 100 articles so that was everything from you know best 100 beauty tips um cookery tips you know home tips and all and that sat in a specific channel on our website we also asked some leading experts in their fields to write us a series of future gazing articles. So we had everybody from um, Sir James Dyson talking about the future of uh, of invention, Dame Sarah Gilbert talking about um, looking at, at future pandemics and obviously having developed the vaccine for COVID, how that might go in the future. Um, Liz Bonin talking about sustainability looking forward, obviously the issue with climate change 
And so real leading it, Deborah Mead on, on entrepreneurship going forward. So so we ran a series over the year and that again ran across platforms. And then two other key initiatives that uh, we were very passionate about last year. We partnered with Women Supporting Women, which is part of the Prince's Trust. Um, and that really is about helping young young women aged um, up to the age of 30 get a foothold in their careers, either as a business or get training to um, to propel them forward. And very much conscious that this was important to help the next generation come through. Um, and so we encouraged our audience, uh, who in print would be a little bit older than that, to really become mentors for women supporting women at the Prince's Trust. They're, they're very keen to have um, energetic mentors. So we ran a series of articles with Women Supporting Women, and we also encouraged our readers to get involved with their event in October, which is the Brilliant Breakfast, and host a brilliant breakfast with friends. You know, that, that I think was very successful. And, you know, we, we're hoping to continue working with the Prince's Trust on the Women Supporting Women initiative because it is very important to put the ladder down for the women coming through. And then the other thing we did as an uh, initiative, we partnered with the Women's Prize for Fiction, which you probably know, which uh, shines a spotlight on women authors in particular. And we created with them the Futures Prize, which involves a panel of judges from the Women's Prize and, and from Good Housekeeping. And we shortlisted 10 authors who we feel will be the, the great authors of the future for this country. And uh, we then, over the series of the year, across platform, introduced those authors and their, their books to our readers and got them to vote on their favourite. And at Good Housekeeping Live, we announced who the readers had voted as their favourite future author. Uh, and that was Stacey Halls, um, who's written, among other things, Mrs England. And that really was, again, it was up to the age of 35. Now, the reason we did that was because lots of research, including from the Prince's Trust, and a huge number of organisations really showed that the pandemic had adversely affected young women um, more than other people in society. So we were very keen to basically uh, help the next generation and, and particularly with authors. We know books are a passion point for our for our audience to, um, to shine the spotlight on the next generation of, of women authors. And I think it was very successful in doing that. And uh, I mean, interestingly, going into this year, and continuing with the theme with reading, I've chosen as our partner charity for this year, the National Literacy Trust, because um, research by that, that charity has found that the pandemic and followed by the cost of living crisis is really badly impacting young children. And now 20 percent, I mean, I, I can't get over this, of, of young children have no books at home. Yeah. Moreover, school libraries are now disappearing. And as a publisher, of magazines and of websites, we need the next generation reading and finding joy in reading. And, you know, for all sorts of reasons to ensure fairness in society and diversity in society, people have to have equal access to reading and to books. So we're really just starting work on that campaign now. So, um, but yeah, so that, that's a little bit last year and then a bit, a bit of this year, but, but lots of things going on really to try and ensure that um, good housekeeping is future facing and is really assisting the next generation of, of women and young people coming through as well. So I suppose, what does a good housekeeping reader look like now? Do you still find that you've got a sort of core audience of maybe women that are more sort of in the home or is it is that changed since? I, know, I mean, I think good housekeeping, I think 
the, the name is, it's, we were set up 100 years ago, so 1922, after the First World War. I mean, it, originally the brand came from the US, um, it was set up in the US in 1885 for the pioneering women of the, of the Midwest to, to help them. And then our founder, William Randolph Hearst, launched it in, um, in the UK after the First World War, really to help initially middle class women who were setting up their homes fit for heroes after the First World War, people couldn't afford um, domestic help anymore. And so they were really um, setting up their homes. The mission of the magazine always when it first launched, it was twofold. People who don't know Good Housekeeping King is probably about housekeeping. But actually, um, the mission of it when it was first set up, and I'll just read you some the first editor's letter, it was that there should be no drudgery in the house. There must be time to think, to read, to enjoy life, to hold one's youth as long as possible, to have beauty around us, colour in dress, form and colour in our surroundings, to have good food without monotony. So really, it was about if you have a well-run home, if you organise your life effectively, it frees you up for the finer things of life, the good things. And so the brand was always about, yeah, here's advice to have a well-run home, but here's inspiration for fashion, for beauty, for, for reading, for travel, for all of those other things. And so it's far more than just about about housework and, and you know, housewives. Um, and then the other thing, the second prong was, uh, as a brand, was that the burning questions of the day will be reflected in articles by women in the public eye, by women who are fearless and frank and outspoken. And that was the second prong. And again, that's very, very important. Both of those prongs are important to the DNA. And we stay true to that. I think that's why we're, we're still successful. With how how we cover those things and on what formats and what platforms has changed but actually at our root we still do those things we give people good advice to have a well-run home and well-run life and inspire them on all the other areas of life and we also run some you know cracking editorial to inspire thinking and and to challenge people's thinking so the reader I mean, I, th- I think we've got lots of different readers in the print audience, I think, is uh, is largely women. And but we're very fortunate in, in really appealing to two generations of women. I mean, I think young women w- who are renting um, post uni probably are too young for us. It's really when people get their first home that they, they come to us in, as an audience. But we're we've got two and three generations of women now. That readers so they to do a sort of pen portrait of one typical reader is quite hard because I'll have readers writing to me who are in their 30s I'll have readers who are writing to me in their 80s and we we work very hard to appeal across that not really thinking about the age of some somebody but really to appeal across that audience um, and then on our website we uh, probably skew we will skew younger than that. So we've got uh, a lot of readers who really across ages. So, you know, if you're a teenager and you spill a bottle of red wine on your parents' carpet when you're having a party, I think there's something that, that people know good housekeeping well enough to think, well, how am, how am I going to get that stain out? And, you know, we're such a well-known brand in the UK that I think we we appeal to all ages. And we know that over a quarter of our audience on the website are men who are coming to us for our recipes and our product reviews so um you know so a lot of men are very familiar with the brand as well so it's it's really a vast audience um i mean largely women in print but but you know men as well on the website and 
and really right across a, a huge age range of people. So it's about the content that interests people. And I mean, that has changed from when we launched. Um, it was squarely aimed at women and 20% of women were working when we launched in 1920, 1922. It's now 80% of women who are working. Um, interestingly, the lifespan of a woman in uh, 1922 was 54, age 54, and it's now 81. So obviously our audience is, you know, has grown and broadened uh, over over the century. But, um, but yeah, I'd like to think that, you know, there's something there pretty much for for everyone now. Yeah. Have you noticed there's been any kind of shift in either demand or behaviours from the pandemic? Because I suppose people spent a lot more time at home, both men and women. Have, have you found sort of any changes in the way people are approaching housekeeping and their home life generally now? Well, I think definitely, I mean, during the pandemic itself, you know, we know we could just see it happening every day on the on the traffic on the website, the interest in all everything around the home from, you know, cooking as well to home decor, to gardens. I mean, it just went absolutely off the scale. Um, so, so you know, that that love of home and actually making your space uh, somewhere that you wanted to be, I think was really key. I mean, I know because I did it myself, having, you know, not spending much time at home pre-pandemic and then suddenly you're there and you start noticing all the things that need doing in your house. So we know that we, uh, we, we gave people a lot of advice there. I think now we're in a phase where the challenges are a bit different. I mean, I think we've, you know, although it's very recent history, I think people have moved on in a way from it. And I think obviously now the the key things that people are grappling with is the cost of living crisis. And that's where we find people are coming to us for advice on, you, you know, um, how to, to use less energy at home and uh, how to cook more cheaply and and you know advice basically to to trim the costs on their on their on living living well but but doing it for less money and so we're providing a lot of advice in that um regard and i mean the other thing that obviously is coming through as an increasing uh interest and concern for people is sustainability so again that's another area that where we're really ramping up our content and looking to give people good advice and I think that going forward. So so I think there's patterns that have changed. I think really we have moved on from from what we were seeing in the pandemic now to different interests, really. I mean, one of the other things that happened last year, apart from your your centenary, was that the, the Queen passed away. And I can imagine probably, especially for your audience, she was quite an important figure. As an editor, how did you navigate that? I, th- I think you did a special issue, didn't you? Yeah, so, um, I mean, we know we did a great big survey last year of our readers, basically across all hundreds of different things about their attitudes to life. And one of the questions that we asked was about female role models and, you know, who they most looked up to. And by an absolute mile, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II was their number one, even ahead of their own mothers and grandmothers. Wow. Um, you know, she was so universally loved, I think, by people in the country. Uh, so we had, I mean, we had worked on, on doing sort of a lot of special things around the Platinum Jubilee, um, which we did. But we had also, uh, we put, pulled together for our November issue, we pulled together a special supplement, um, Memories of Queen Elizabeth II, that went out to newsstands and subscribers basically with with members beautiful photography and um and sort of looking back at, at her reign 
And I, I just, I mean, I suppose, you know, for the country, it was such a huge moment. And I think our audience was was really sort of quite devastated by it. She was sort of the, the queen seemed immortal somehow, although she was a, an elderly lady. She'd been part of our lives for such a long time. So I I think um, I, I hopefully we did her proud with with our special supplement. And uh, and I had some very nice emails and, and letters and so on from readers about it, who I think were pleased to see Good Housekeeping marking such a you know historic event. To have something as a souvenir that you can keep um, marking that was very important to us as a brand. You know, um, Her Majesty the Queen came to the throne fairly soon after Good Housekeeping launched, you know. Gosh, and, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, th- there was some parallels there with, obviously, we, it was our 100th birthday, but, you know, the, Her Majesty the Queen was 96. So I, I think... Um, yeah, I think it was very important to market really acro- across all our platforms, you know, and, and social and and the newsletter and the website, but, you know, particularly in print to give our audience a souvenir that they could keep. Um, yeah, felt, felt like something that we, we should do. And, and I hopefully from the feedback I've had, we, we did it well. Yeah. The Good Housekeeping Institute, I know you've mentioned it earlier on, um, I suppose, could you just give a little bit of background about what that is? And I suppose, to what extent does the magazine work alongside that? Or is, the, is it very much separate? No, I mean, it, it's, it underpins absolutely um, everything we do. So the Good Housekeeping Institute um, launched in 1924, and it really became the engine room of testing products. Uh, and the reason it came about, it was really to help readers choose and buy the best based on testing by a team of researchers and scientists. Um, and that from that grew the Good Housekeeping tried and tested stamp of approval. And that really remains a unique cornerstone of the brand today. Um, it's so much so that an amazing 87% of consumers are more likely to buy a product which bears our GHI approved logo. Um, and, and I think it's sort of, it's unique really in that the way that's, always products have been tested there is to test products as a reader would test them at home so not necessarily in a scientific um in a you know science lab they do test them as they'd be tested at home so for example if we do a vacuum cleaning test uh we'll use pet hair from Battersea we collect pet hair from Battersea and that will be stepped into all different kinds of um carpets and hard flooring and so on and then the vacuum cleaners will be um, tested against each other to, to basically see performance and suction power and everything. And the contents that they that will be weighed after they've um, they've done the test. But there is very much about using them as a reader would use them in their home. But I mean, we sh- shine a light on those tests. I mean, it's really integral to, to what the brand does. The two work very closely together. You know, we, we in print and on the website, we're showcasing the tests that are going on there um, all the time. So so the two things work very closely. Obviously, there is a team of researchers and scientists working there all the time. But, um, but I mean, it gives us an amazing, unique power, really, as a brand to actually not just write about things because we like the look of them. We're writing about products and services because they've been properly tested. Yeah, I had a tour of it about must be about five years ago. I remember just seeing like there are all these washing machines going, and there was like the vacuum cleaners in a sort of different section, and they were sort of applying. Um, gosh, I think they were doing anti-aging cream and like taking sort of photos under all the lights. 
Yeah, and I mean, it's it's very, very high tech now. So obviously, the equipment that the team use now, there's an enhanced um, hair machine now that, I mean, to the minute degree, will measure frizz and moisture, and it will cover all hair types. And I mean, really state-of-the-art equipment. And then there's also a machine called a Vizia that basically can um, look at your skin and your face and look at how it's a that you know things that you couldn't see with the naked eye um and it, it it'll look at how much sun damage you've got and how you're aging and so on it's kind of quite um I suppose Willy Wonka kind of stuff it's sort of very, really you know state-of-the-art but yeah it's amazing it really is it's mind-blowing really and to have that behind our brand is 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 quite incredible really so you've been at Hearst for almost a decade now and I think a lot of people would argue that it's probably one of the most turbulent decades for media companies. I suppose, what are some of the biggest changes and opportunities you've seen for magazine media during that time? I think it's how our audiences can consume our content, obviously, has just expanded exponentially across different platforms. So although, you know, websites were going very well sort of 10 years ago, I think the expansion of digital content is just been absolutely incredible uh and and really now what we're all about is being wherever our audience is so yes there are audiences you know the print brand is is alive and kicking and very healthy and some readers and consumers want to consume us in print and have one experience there equally if you want to know what to cook tonight you will go to our website and do a recipe search equally you know, we know um, social media is ever more important and reaching audience on there. So, you know, our Instagram lives with 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 cooking advice are, are very popular as well. And now we're increasingly um, putting content out on TikTok to appeal to the next generation of audience. You know, my daughters keep seeing things on there. It's like, oh, this is this is from Good Housekeeping Mum. And it's like, yeah, we're there too. Um, and our cleaning videos are, are really popular. On oh, TikTok. of course, of course. <laughs> So, yes, if you if uh, for those teens and and students who do actually want to clean something, there's um there's some great great advice on TikTok from Good Housekeeping. So I think that you know when certainly during my career when I first came into it and it I came from a print background, but you know now the opportunity to engage with an audience across platforms is amazing, and also being able to get that instant feedback from your audience. So you know pretty quickly now whether you're getting it right and what they want more of. Um, and yes, we do surveys with our audience all the time, but you know we get a pretty good idea from the feedback we're getting on social. And you know, my email inbox is testament to what people are enjoying and what they're not enjoying, uh, or what they want more of, and where they want advice. So, so we we have a very sort of two way dialogue with our audience, which I think is is quite different as well. You know, ten years ago it would be much more the mailbag coming in, and now it's pretty instant, which is is fantastic as a journalist that you can respond very very quickly um, to what your audience wants. Well, we talk a lot about media business models and earlier we were talking about having a mix of six. And if you do want to contribute to our broadening revenue mix, you can go to our Ko-Fi page and pay us either a one-off donation or support us on a recurring basis. You can find that by going to voices.media where there is a link and occasionally we tweet it out on our social channels. We're still on Twitter, we're not on Mastodon quite yet, and Media Voices Pod. 
And you can sign up for our newsletter at Voices.media. We do it every weekday. And you may notice that some of the stories that we talk about on the weekly podcast are mentioned first in the newsletter. So you can get a little jump on it all by signing up for our newsletter. Go to Voices.media and sign up. But until next week, when we'll be back with more <laughs> optimistic chat about the role of AI in media. Thank you so much for listening. Do go to our website and... How long is it going to be till they like, replace us with robot? I think we'd struggle to program it to be as downbeat. <laughs> and we couldn't program it to rant quite as much. No, that's true. When we go off. Yet. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>